This is a reading from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, and 18 through 21, found on page 178 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom he devoted to destruction." And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death." And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is, in, who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sir Lynn. My name is Tim Geiger. I am the pastoral advisor uh, here at Liberty Northeast. It's good to see you, and it is a pleasure to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. We're here in the second week of a five-week series looking at the lives and the stories of five women of particular distinction. These five women are named as ancestors of Jesus in Matthew's account of the gospel. And what's extraordinary about these five women is twofold. One is that they're mentioned at all, uh, because as Pastor Evan mentioned last week, ordinarily in genealogies like the one at the beginning of Matthew, only the fathers, only the men are listed. 
And so the fact that these five women are listed among 40 men is noteworthy. And there's something that the Lord wants us to see in the mention of their names and their stories. The second thing is, none of these women has a particularly socially acceptable backstory. Again, as Pastor Evan pointed out last week, none of them would be people who, on the surface, you would hold up as the most august branches of your family tree. And yet the Lord singles them out in Matthew 1 with the particular distinction of being ancestors of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Evan looked at the story of Tamar, a woman who used deceit in pretending to be a prostitute in order to protect her interests and secure a future for herself. And this week, we look at Rahab, an actual prostitute who deceived a king in order to lose virtually everything that she had and to gain the things that she hoped for. And so, we'll look at Rahab's story using two points. One, that God uses messy people to achieve His holy purposes, and two, that God's holy purposes are gracious. So the first point, God uses messy people to achieve His holy purposes. So what did we learn about Rahab in the story that Sir Lynn just read? The first thing we learn about her in Joshua 2.1 is that she's a prostitute, short and simple. And that's not necessarily something that you want prominently featured in the ancestry of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And yet, it is. And there's something very, very important about that fact. As we meet her in Joshua 2.1, Rahab is described as a prostitute, but at the end of Joshua chapter 6, After the conquest of Jericho is complete, a few days later, Rahab is still referred to as a prostitute. It says in Joshua 6.25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved. This is after Rahab did this, this great act of courage, this great act of bravery in saving those two spies. She's still called a prostitute. Then roughly 1,100 years later in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, Rahab is actually held up as a model of faith. You might remember that Hebrews chapter 11 is where the writer of Hebrews lists all of these Old Testament believers. And he says that these are people who are models for what it looks like to be someone who believes and trusts in God. But she's still referred to as a prostitute. In Hebrews 11.31, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. She's still called a prostitute. And then in the book of James... The book right after Hebrews in the New Testament, Rahab is singled out again, and she's actually put on a par with Abraham as a model of faith, but she's still referred to as Rahab, the prostitute. James 2.25 says, and in the same way as Abraham was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by her works. Why is she still called a prostitute? 
We, we know she didn't remain a prostitute after she was saved out of Jericho. We read at the end of Joshua chapter 6 that Rahab was eventually welcomed into the camp of Israel, and at some point, she marries an Israelite named Salmon. And she becomes the mother of Boaz, and Rahab becomes the great-grandmother of King David. So Rahab is not only saved from physical, physical destruction, but she's welcomed into the people of Israel, and she becomes the wife of a pretty prominent man. And after all of this change, after all of this reformation, why? Why is she still referred to as a prostitute? Doesn't that belong to her former life? Isn't that something left behind? I think there's a good kingdom-based reason why the biblical authors continue to refer to Rahab as a prostitute according to her former way of life. And I think the reason is this, that God delights in saving sinners, and He is the only one who is able to save sinners. In other words, Neither Rahab nor any other sinner, past or present or future, can take credit for their salvation and their new life. We can't look at our own efforts today and, and thank ourselves for our salvation. It's all an act of God's grace and mercy. And it's the reason, it's a reason to worship God and to give Him alone the glory because He is the one who's brought it all about. Rahab's past gives God glory because we are constantly reminded what she was saved out of. Not just saved out of a life of prostitution, but out of a life separated from the glory and the presence of God. And every time an Old Testament Jew or a New Testament Christian would recite the history of Israel, they would remember that Rahab was, was, something radically different than what she was saved into. And God is the only one who can make that transformation happen. Now, why Rahab the prostitute and not Simon the thief or Sarah the gossip? What was special or unique about Rahab that the Lord chose her to be the one in Jericho? to receive faith and to hide the Israelite spies? Well, the Bible doesn't give us insight uh, into that question, but I think one thing it does tell us is that there was nothing in particular about Rahab, perhaps other than the scandalous nature of her background. And, and here's what I think the, the biblical authors want us to see as, as we read the story of Rahab. And that is that God delights in using sinners of all kinds to bring Himself glory. And I think that God receives the most glory when those sinners begin to reflect more and more the light that is God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and a theologian, and he was a martyr who was murdered in a Nazi concentration camp near the end of World War II. But before 
all of that happened, uh, he wrote um, a little book called Reflections on Advent and Christmas. And this is what he said in that book. He said, it is the wonder of wonders that God loves the lowly. God's not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs the wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak and broken. And my friends, this is the good news of Advent. The good news of Christmas, it's the good news of the gospel itself, that God saw us when we were dead in sin and made us alive in Christ Jesus. God saw Rahab lost in her sin, and he saved not only her, but her entire family. And not because she did anything to merit God's favor. God didn't save her because He knew that she would do something good and protect the spies. God saved her simply because he chose to save her. And he's the one who gave her that faith to trust in a God she had never seen and never known and do something that was righteous. Perhaps you can identify with Rahab or with the words that Bonhoeffer used to describe lowly people. Perhaps, especially as we enter into this time of the year, which is focused around family and friends and being together with other people and celebrating um, being part of something bigger than yourself, and you feel lost, you feel neglected, you feel alone or unseen or ashamed. But if you know that you're a sinner and trust not only in your own efforts, uh, trust not, rather, in your own efforts, but only in the work of Jesus to atone for your sin, God invites you to not remain stuck in those feelings of loneliness and isolation. He invites you into His family. He invites you to know Him through His Son, Jesus. God saved Rahab from being outside of his people, and he brought her inside, making her not only his daughter through grace, but he gave her a new, better reputation and a family to which to belong. And those things are yours as well if you're in Christ. You're no longer an outsider. You're a dearly loved son. You're a dearly loved daughter. And that's the definition of grace, that we don't receive the things that we deserve. We receive, instead, God's unmerited love and favor. Here's something else for us to get our heads around. At the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter of Revelation, Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Look, if Jesus, even in his resurrected, ascended glory, sitting at the Father's right hand, 
is still proud to embrace his humanity and, identi and identify, rather, himself as the descendant of David. He's not only embracing David, he's embracing all of the people who came before David, Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, all of the, all of the women and the men mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. He embraces Rahab the prostitute as one of his foremothers. He doesn't avoid the sinful and broken past of those whom he calls to be in him. He's not ashamed to acknowledge the fallenness of his ancestors. And if he does that for the likes of Rahab the prostitute, he'll never avoid you or be ashamed of you. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Jesus proclaims in the heavenly courts proudly that you are his brother, you are his sister. The second point, God's holy purposes are gracious. So King David, who was Rahab's great-grandson, wrote this in Psalm 145. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. That's Psalm 145, verses 8 and 17. We don't know when David wrote the psalm. We only know that it's the last psalm attributed to David in the Psalter. But we imagine that he wrote this psalm as he was perhaps in middle age, looking back over the course of his life and all that had taken place throughout his reign over Israel. There have been things in David's life that were objectively good, like seeing God protect him as he fled from Saul, remembering the strength the Lord provided to David to lead his army against Israel's enemies, seeing all God's people unite under one king. But there were also lots of hard things, some of which were brought on by David's own sin. David saw his infant son die as a consequence of his sin against God and Bathsheba and Uriah, and Pastor Evan will talk about that in two weeks. He saw another son, Absalom, stage a coup against him, and then he had to grieve Absalom's death. He watched God bring plagues upon the people of Israel because David disobeyed God's command and took a census of the people of Israel. But even with those hard things, David can still write near the end of his life that God is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, that he shows grace. Why does David say that? How can he say that? It's because David learned over the course of his life that God is at work in all things, the good and the bad, in order to ultimately bring about good for his people. David saw that even the hard things he experienced in some way led him to know God better and to love Him more. And Rahab could probably say the same things. The Lord used the hard circumstances of destroying her city, her home, all her friends, and probably most of what she owned. And that was the means by which he brought her into his family, 
and made her not only a daughter of the king, but a wife and a mother who was loved and respected. As a prostitute, Rahab probably received jeers and taunts from her fellow Jerichoites, or whatever the people in Jericho were called. But as a woman who had received grace to trust in God, she received a new identity, a family, and an enduring heritage. And as we mentioned earlier, even the New Testament writers hold Rahab up as an example of a faithful person in Hebrews and James. And again, if that's true for Rahab, it's true for you. God's holy purposes in my life and your life are gracious as well, the good things and the bad things. What kinds of difficult experiences have you endured over the last few years? Have you been betrayed by someone? Has a child walked away from the faith? Are you single and desperately want to be married? Are you in a loveless marriage where you feel completely alone? Have you had health struggles, financial struggles? Struggles with patterns of sin that simply won't let you go no matter how hard you pray or try? Do you feel forgotten and alone? Well, there are two things to consider here. One is that God knows what you're going through. He sees you. In another of his psalms, Psalm 56, David writes this. He writes, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That's Psalm 56, 8. David's experience of God in the midst of his own hard times is that God knows what David is going through and is so close to David that it's as though God captured each one of David's tears in a bottle as an everlasting remembrance of David's pain. You have to be very close to someone. You have to be in physical contact with someone in order to capture their tears. And that's how David regarded God. David asks rhetorically, don't you record each one of my tears in your notebook? And so, again, David knows that God is not only present with him, but God remembers the pain that caused each one of those tears. That's one thing. Here's the second, that Jesus is God-made flesh. Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to put on this weak human form and to experience every kind of rejection, every kind of pain, every kind of loss that you and I could ever deal with. And that's so comforting. It is comforting. I hope it comforts you today. Because it's the incarnation of Psalm 56. That Jesus knows each one of our tears and can perfectly enter into that darkness and see us there because He suffered those things Himself. And that is what the, the life of the believer is like. Sometimes we, we think that when we come to Christ, 
everything from that point on should be like skipping through a field of daisies on a beautiful spring day. Nothing goes wrong. God blesses us in everything we do. But the reality is, we are still people saddled by sin. Our own sin and the sin of people around us. And that's why people far wiser than us created this season of Advent in the church year to remind us that we exist in a pervasive darkness. And yet, as John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, even in the midst of that deep darkness, it can't overcome the light. And so, Advent begins with a single candle, a single candle that defeats the light bit by bit. And every Sunday during Advent, another candle is lit until finally on Christmas, the entire Advent wreath is lit. And we are reminded that progressively, gradually, sometimes painfully, God is pushing back the darkness in our lives, in our hearts, and through us, He's pushing back the darkness in the world. So you might ask, why do we still suffer? Why, why is there this darkness that God didn't just take away? Theologians have tried to answer that question for 2,000 years, and here is a very short and very inadequate answer. God uses our suffering to call us to Himself. As we suffer, God invites us to come to Him and find the hope and contentment we seek solely in relationship with Him. God uses our suffering. He uses our pain. He uses our loneliness, our rejection, to give us what we are incapable of giving ourselves, real hope and real life. Rahab, as a prostitute, tried to find comfort. She tried to find control. She tried to find solace. She tried to find relationship in the arms of men who only cared about her to the extent that they could make, uh, she could make them feel better. None of them cared about her. And yet God used all of that to radically transform her situation and her experience so that she knew what true love was. The only way she could ever long for that true love was to feel the emptiness of the broken love she was pursuing. And so, if you're in pain today, if you're suffering, if you're wondering when all of the suffering is going to end and the darkness is going to be pushed back completely, I think the Lord might be inviting you to lean into Him and to find that His purposes for you are always gracious. They're not painless. They're usually not quick, but they are gracious. God wants us to know Him and His faithfulness in order that we would know how much He loves us. And through all of your pain and suffering, God wants you to be transformed. He wants you to be made into something new and beautiful and breathtaking because you see His love for you as perfect, 
and His plans for you is beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine for yourself. Rahab is a strong example of faith and courage in Scripture. The purpose of her story isn't to say, buck up, be strong and courageous like Rahab. Rather, the purpose of Rahab's story is to say, you have no control over your life. Fall upon the Lord and trust in His love for you. Rest in His strength. Trust in His love. Depend on His love alone to fully atone for your sin, and don't rely on your own good works. A minister from Philadelphia by the name of Jack Miller once said this to poor sinners like me and like you. He said, cheer up. You're far worse off than you think, but you're more deeply loved than you could ever imagine. May we hope in God's grace and love alone and find in the work of Jesus Christ alone more joy than we could ever muster in our own strength. Let's pray.